Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Warm greetings from Northwest Germany. My name is Dong Wang, and I'm the host for today's interview with Dr. Scott Moore about his new book, China's Next Act, How Sustainability and Technology Are Shaping China's Rise and the World's Future, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Scott, I wonder if you'd say a few words about yourself. Absolutely. There are two parts of my background that did lead me to this book, uh, and I really appreciate the opportunity to have a chance to talk a little bit about it with you. Um, The first part of my background that led me to this book is the fact that I'm from Kentucky uh, in the United States, which is primarily a coal state, at least historically. And when I was growing up, I played in a neighborhood soccer league whose coach was one of Kentucky's very few environmental lawyers. And in Kentucky, being an environmental lawyer typically means in one way or another suing coal companies for pollution and and other kind of impacts of coal mining. And so from a pretty young age, I was really interested in environmental issues in general, and in particular, climate change and energy issues. Flash forward, and in high school, I had the opportunity to go to a boarding school in Hong Kong. That was in the early 2000s. I was there from 2002 to 2004, so five years or so after Hong Kong reverted to Chinese sovereignty, but still at a time when Hong Kong was very much kind of gateway to mainland China for multinational companies and foreign firms and citizens. And it was a really interesting and very exciting time to be living there. And that engendered a strong interest in China. And so in my subsequent study and career, I've tried to merge those two things, my interest in environmental issues and especially climate change and my interest in China, and to focus on China's role in tackling shared global challenges and providing global public goods, especially in the realm of environment and sustainability. Great, Scott. Thank you so much. Good to know you went to Hong Kong for your high school. I think around the time I was working at Lingnan University in Hong Kong, too. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I've been there. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, thank you. Scott, looking at the sources you have used, I found good recent media reports, think tank papers, intermixed with academic journal articles and monographs on the themes of the day. 
There are also some sprinkles and anecdotes from history. In other words, the book serves in real time on the top of the greatest monster wave of our epoch, China's rise. It is truly fascinating to see how you balance on top of all the news as it breaks and exhausts the narrative of every flow and eddy. As a historian, I crave for explanations, contexts, and ideas. And in your book, you discussed authoritarianism, illiberalism, nationalism, lack of human rights, even nativism. Terms that, together with their antonyms, provide the outline of a contrasting interpretation. But honestly, do these theories and frameworks satisfy you? Which alternative concept could see a stronger narrative of explanation? For example, how can sustainability align individual, local, social? National and global interests. Oh, that's a great question, Tong. And I think to answer it, it's maybe the time to also just say a little bit about what the book is about as a whole.、Uh, and it really is about trying to understand China's role in tackling shared global challenges, especially those related to environmental sustainability. As well as emerging technology, which maybe we can talk about a little bit more later, but in the context of growing rivalry and tension with other countries, which is another way of saying that I think we have to think about China's role in issues like climate change or public health or artificial intelligence, which we were talking about a little bit offline earlier. Dong. Uh, not just through the lens of cooperation, which we kind of used to thinking about that we need cooperation with China to to solve climate change, which to some extent we do, but as a practical matter, that is not always feasible or practical. And I think we have to think about different ways to try to engage China, Chinese companies, Chinese firms, in order to tackle these shared global challenges. And that's really what the book is about: is to try to set out for the reader. What China's role in these shared global challenges looks like, and how we can make progress, even as relations worsen, unfortunately, between China and much of the rest of the world. You mentioned three kind of illiberal principles and practices that I talk about in the book, and it's maybe worth saying a little bit more about why I talk about those. And the three, as you mentioned, are authoritarianism, nationalism. Uh, and protectionism, and I mean that primarily in in terms of economic and trade protectionism. And the reason that I think it's important to talk about those three principles and practices is that, unfortunately, they have, for the most part, shaped China's response、uh, to issues like climate change or emerging technologies.、Um, and there are pretty deep-seated reasons why I think that those principles and practices have formed the basis of. China's policy、uh, when it comes to environment, as well as technology and other areas. But the most important thing to note is that they make it really difficult to envision cooperation with other countries. And a really good recent example of all of this is the fact that after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan back in August, one of Beijing's responses was to suspend. Climate change cooperation with the United States、uh, in retaliation for that. So it's a good example, I think, of why it's really difficult to sort of rely on 
uh, the idea of cooperation, at least as we typically understand it, to tackle these shared challenges, given rapidly rising tensions between China and other countries. Great. Now let's turn to the idea of competition. Although you do a lot to avoid the obvious temptation to reduce the topic to an all-out rivalry between two great powers, describing in much detail the countervailing trends and self-defeating behaviors on both sides, as well as the divergence of domestic realities, one cannot escape the impression that competition is at the forefront of your mind. After all, you draw a parallel with the Sputnik movement. I quote you here, as Eisenhower himself put it, America's response to Sputnik should stand not on the communists' own terms, outmatching them, in military power, general technological advance, and specialized education and research, but rather on the vigor of our ideals, which are today the United States and China's um, ideals, Scott. How do these ideals differ? What uh, lends them vigor? Mm. Uh, another really uh, great question, Dong. And you're right. I do spend a lot of time talking and thinking about competition in the book. And the reason for that is because it's a reality and it's the reality for relations between China and a lot of other major countries. And one thing that I try to talk about in the book, but that at least in the United States, I don't think we necessarily pay as enough attention to, is the fact that China's relationship with nearly every other important country has worsened since Xi Jinping took power to varying degrees, to be sure. Um, but if you look around the world, whether it's China's immediate neighbors, South Korea, Japan, India, or for the field in uh, regions like Europe, you can look at most major economies and see rising tension uh, between China and those countries. And that makes it really difficult, once again, to envision uh, cooperation as the basis to respond uh, to a lot of our really pressing shared challenges. And uh, again, you know, climate change is one that I focus quite a bit in the book, but there are others. I do talk a lot about the experience of COVID-19 pandemic and what that says about public health cooperation. Um, I also talk about biodiversity uh, conservation as, as an issue that requires uh, international cooperation. The reality, though, is that it's really, really difficult to envision cooperative responses to these challenges. Fortunately, and this is something I, I spend quite a bit of time talking about in the book, there are at least a few ways in which you don't necessarily need uh, cooperation to, to tackle shared global challenges. And in fact, in some ways, competition, especially the sort of geopolitical and economic competition that we see between countries like China and the United States can be beneficial in certain ways. And one example, I think maybe one of the clearer examples of that is in the United States, we had this huge piece of legislation passed this past summer called the Inflation Reduction Act that does, does a lot of things, most of which have nothing to do with inflation. And one of those is to fund a massive expansion of clean energy and clean technology. It's so significant an investment in those technologies that most people think that it's going to reduce U.S. emissions by about 40% towards the middle of this century, making it the most significant bill that Congress has passed uh, to deal with climate change. 
The reason that I think this is significant in the context of China is that in his statement to Congress saying effectively, if you pass this bill, I will sign it, President Biden said, we need this bill in order to help the United States compete more effectively um, with China. Now, I hasten to add that the competition with China isn't necessarily the best reason to want to invest in clean energy or clean technology, um, but it worked. It proved to be an effective political strategy. And that, I think, is an example of how this kind of competition that we see between China and other countries can, in certain cases, be helpful when it comes to fostering climate change and climate action. One other thing I would hasten to add, though, and I try to make this clear in the book, is that I think it's the kind of rethinking how we deal with China in respect to these shared challenges doesn't mean that we should rule out cooperation or that we shouldn't look for ways and and areas in which to cooperate. It's more about employing a mix of different strategies and approaches and saying that we can't rely solely on cooperation to tackle these shared challenges. Thank you so much. It strikes the reader that you depicted the shifting conjunctures in the PRC as uh, oscillating between periods of real liberal, even democratic opportunity and of party rigor. Did you consider the possibility that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, employed the intermezzos of uh, freer flows and greater individual autonomy? as a strategic and highly controlled instruments for achieving planning goals as what is going on today still. If this is the case, to what extent would Xi Jinping's illiberal turn be a backlash against open-ended and unstoppable liberalism? And to what extent would it, according to their plan, harvest the fruits of a planned lease of freedom, then more questions here. Will liberal and democratic countries be able to both on a national scale and in the international organizations build or rebuild robust democratic, open, and competitive institutions to match? How can these democratic values be upheld in the face of illiberal forces hell-bent on abusing the openness and democratic nature of liberal institutions and countries, Scott? Hmm. Yeah, and there are a number of really important points you make and raise in your question, Dong. And I think the first thing I would say, kind of getting back to some of our earlier discussion about why I, I think we need to think about issues like climate change or public health, not just in terms of cooperation or things that we need to work together to solve, but also in terms of contestation and competition and tension and rivalry is because they are laden with values and it's impossible to separate Uh, issues like climate change, certainly emerging technologies like artificial intelligence from fundamental principles, values, and norms. Um, And that's something that I try to lay out very early in the book in saying that if anything, newer technologies and newer challenges like the pandemic that we all just starting to recover from show us is that they're 
new arenas and new kind of battlegrounds in some respects, not literally, but certainly figuratively, for very different values that China under the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping bring to the world um, versus those of other countries, all of which are critical to solving these shared global challenges. So again, it's a question of how you think about these shared challenges given these very different values. And I think fundamentally, that's what the case of China forces us to reckon with, is the fact that you have a country that's indispensable to tackling these shared global challenges, but that fundamentally brings very different values and principles to thinking about them. Now, this is probably the time to to clarify, and I I try to do this in the book, um, that China is far from the only country to have experienced a surge in, for example, nationalism or uh, a turn towards authoritarianism. So it's not that this is, you know, unique um, in in the world. And certainly I don't mean to kind of let other countries, including my own, off the hook. But the fact of the matter is that when you think about an issue like climate change, China is far and away the world's largest emitter. The fact that it has relied so heavily on, for example, economic protectionism and trying to protect its own solar panel manufacturers at the expense of foreign firms has an outsized negative impact on global efforts to solve the problem. So it's not the case that I don't recognize that there's plenty of sort of blame to go around um, for the failures of our collective response to climate change. But nonetheless, there is a very significant and disproportionate share of the explanation for that that I think is particular to China. Just a couple of other points that you raised that I wanted to address. One important point that I try to make towards the end of the book is, and that I think, you know, even the the recent and ongoing protests, I think, sort of force us to, to think a little bit about, is the extent to which China's apparent turn under Xi Jinping towards a much more nationalistic, authoritarian, autarkic system is inevitable, or whether, as the first part of your question implies, we should see it as part of a historical kind of oscillation between periods of of openness and turns or movements inward. And while I don't want to get into the business of predicting, you know, what may or may not happen in the near future, I do think what's fair to say is that thanks largely to developments in the realms of sustainability and technology where I focus the book, you know, contemporary China is a very diverse, increasingly pluralistic in some ways, at least in terms of, you know, points of view, if not, you know, political mobilization or anything like that and very uh, sophisticated place. And I think we would be at great risk if we assume that contemporary China is not capable of significant change. So I do think it's important to kind of maintain the mental space to uh, to anticipate uh, that change, particularly on those uh, metrics or principles of authoritarianism, nationalism, and protectionism. I would add, however, that I think that change can be either for the good or for the even worse from a foreign perspective. And I think the I, I spend a little bit of time in the book uh, focusing on nationalism in that in that vein. And I do think there are very concerning nationalist kind of narratives and discourses in contemporary China with respect to things like climate change. There's a longstanding kind of meme, I suppose you could say, that climate change is essentially a foreign plot 
to kind of isolate China and constrain its development, for example, um, that has enjoyed a bit of a resurgence in recent years. There have, of course, been many narratives about COVID-19 being you know, a sort of U.S.-backed bioweapon that was unleashed on China. To be clear, uh, those are fringe narratives and discourses as it currently stands. But you can easily see that, you know, if a couple of things were to change in terms of China's overall political social setup, that they could become much more influential and much more prominent. So I think that while we shouldn't assume that the kind of current course that Xi Jinping appears to have set China on won't change, it could change either for good or bad from, you know, a sort of foreign liberal perspective. Yeah, indeed, Scott. Um, the one big innovative area you have by and large left out to address in your book uh, is finance, financial technology, cryptocurrencies, and the social credit systems. For one thing, the financial sector's importance in the reforms up to today is crucial. Moreover, the impact of various global and regional financial crises on the Chinese banking sector was minimal. Last but not least, the emergence of online payments, insurances, and credits empowered some large groups of ordinary citizens for a short while until forced to uh, close down by the state regulator. The Chinese state has imposed strong control with large mobile and fintech firms forays into international financial and other markets. How do such developments fit into the future perspectives of China's rise, Scott? Absolutely. Well, I should maybe say or sort of confess that one challenge with the book is that it's impossible to address every issue area. And I do very briefly note that I think financial system stability in particular is something that deserves a lot more attention from China specialists in terms of the need for other countries to work with China to ensure financial system sustainability. And that's something that, you know, frankly, I think, you know, not to add to the list of things to worry about, because we all have too long a list already, but looking at, you know, China's property market, for example, if there were to be, which I think is, is unlikely, but nonetheless possible, uh, essentially a collapse of that sector, it would cause uh, almost certainly a global financial crisis. And it's something that I know central bankers are thinking about, but I'm not sure how effectively or completely. And I think uh, that's a good example of an area that does need more research, more kind of effort by policymakers to think about how to how to work with Beijing to prevent any type of similar impact. I do talk, glad you brought up mobile payments, Dong, because I, I do talk a little bit about that in a chapter on data. And I think it's a very interesting example of how both for China and the world, China's role in emerging technologies, it tends to be a, a dual-edged sword. So you know, anybody who's been to China anytime in the last five, 10, 10 ish years um, will be familiar with WeChat, which is specifically what I talk about in the book as an example of a sort of do it all Swiss Army knife mobile app that, among other things, has allowed China to, I, I would argue, and I think most people would agree, catapult over 
a lot of other countries, including the U.S., when it comes to the ease and integration of mobile payments. The U.S., I think, is starting to catch up, but probably still isn't quite there in terms of how easy, universal it is to pay to use mobile payments apps. Now, that has uh, some considerable advantages. For one thing, because so much of a Chinese consumer's activity takes place within WeChat as a single app, it facilitates better and more cohesive aggregation of a lot of different types of consumer data. So for a typical Chinese consumer using WeChat as their primary app, you can get a lot of data on spending habits, as well as geolocation history, as well as social networks. Whereas typically for Western consumers, that data is fragmented across a couple of different platforms. You may be using you know, Instagram or Twitter for social media or Facebook, whereas you're probably using Amazon for you know, e-commerce, and you're probably using other apps for mobility and for you know, food ordering and other things. WeChat effectively allows you to aggregate all of that in a single platform. That creates a lot of really useful consumer data, which is uh, beneficial for uh, economic purposes. It is also beneficial for uh, surveillance purposes. And that is where kind of the dual-edged sword comes in, that that level of aggregation creates a lot of new opportunities and incentives for uh, surveillance on individual citizens. One thing I talk about in the book, which is I do think is important to know in this space is that China's uh, increasing technological sophistication, really, as indicated by things like WeChat, has also uh, meant that the risk of surveillance and in some cases censorship that has, you know, unfortunately always really been a part of everyday life in China uh, has now effectively been exported to much of the rest of the world to varying degrees, to be sure. Um, but the proliferation, for example, of China-developed apps, including TikTok, has created some uh, potentially significant privacy risks and surveillance vulnerabilities for foreign citizens. And that's really a new development. Um, prior to the last few years, you know, it was quite difficult for China's party or its state to surveil foreign citizens outside China. That's now changing. And just as significant, it's also this proliferation of technology has also allowed the party and the state to export censorship in some cases. So again, you know, to use, for example, there's you know famous incident involving Zoom, for example, the ability to to leverage Chinese law and regulations to effectively force foreign firms to restrict speech by people outside China. So it's some very interesting and disturbing developments in that space, um, but a, a good example both of the kind of major argument I make in the book of how uh, China's role in the sustainability and technology area is continually increasing, um, but not necessarily in ways that accord with or are even acceptable with liberal norms and values. And that creates a really difficult problem and dilemma of how to deal with them and how to engage, try to engage Beijing to address shared challenges in the absence of shared values. Great. Thank you, uh, Scott. Speaking of surveillance, the PRC surveillance and uh, suspension of millions of WeChat accounts, um, I would like to hear what uh, you think about uh, the international academic freedom. You discussed at length the effect on global science collaboration of the international rifts associated with China's um, 
rise, the examples of how U.S. academic freedom, both in history and in recent times, has spawned high-flying academic careers and path-breaking research outcomes by Chinese-American scholars, albeit in some cases cut short by anti-Chinese politics, a counter poised by the PRC headhunting of American celebrity scholars to become Qianren professors in China, the true international nature of science and community and the value of constant and intensive scientific exchange um, and collaboration are undisputed. Um, perhaps because your main focus is on natural sciences and technology, that you do not comment on the elevation of the CCP ideology to a guiding level above scientific inquiry, not only in terms of the adulation of Xi Jinping and the competition tenders for research funding to underpin Xi Jinping thought, but also in new high-level ac academies that assemble brain power <clears throat> tasked with rewriting social sciences and humanities to that end. Well, conversely, the scope of scientific freedom is narrowed down. How do you see the future of international research collaboration under such conditions, Scott? Well, uh, Dong, I think you point out in the sort of two parts of your question of irony <laughs> um, that I, I try to draw out and explain in the book. And the irony is this, probably China's single greatest contribution to global public goods has been in the form of human capital, and especially the large numbers of Chinese students and scholars who have uh, studied and worked uh, abroad and the contributions that they have made to every field, but you know, including science and technology abroad are almost incalculable. Uh, and yet on the other hand, the reason that a gap remains, I think, between China's ability to lead the world in science, technology, and innovation uh, is because of its obsession with political control and the sorts of phenomena that you pointed out, the kind of elevation of uh, Jinping thought over empiricism, for example. Now, again, I you know, hasten to add China's not the only country in which science is politicized <laughs> or in which uh, you know, there's kind of anti-intellectualism. So uh, you know, want to be clear about that. But I think it's very clear in my mind that certain fundamental features of contemporary China, especially related to political control, really do hold the progress of China back when it comes to science, technology, and innovation. And, and I try to talk a lot about in the book, there is some interesting, though admittedly fairly sparse, research on the importance of informal norms around collaboration, free exchange of information, uh, and things like tolerance of failure and the importance that that has for innovation. And those are all metrics uh, on which more liberal societies tend to score better. And more closed societies like China, particularly under Xi Jinping, score worse. And there's actually a piece that I just wrote that tries to uh, kind of go through 
uh, Xi Jinping's speech to the 20th Party Congress, his so-called work report, that I think is a masterclass in uh, cognitive dissonance, really, uh, in mentioning innovation. Uh, I think there was a study that said it was about 40% of the entire speech uh, made reference to innovation. And yet that's counterbalanced uh, by saying that going forward, all government officials will need to be selected primarily in terms of their ability, uh, in terms of their political reliability, for example. Hardly, you know, basically a total jettisoning of this idea that's existed in the post-Mao period where ability, technical ability, should be the main consideration for selection of cadres, at least below the, you know, top levels, the senior political levels. These things are mutually incompatible to a very large extent. Um, and it's fascinating to me that there's very little sign that that's recognized. Um, at the senior levels. And that, I think, will hold China back. Uh, I think it's also going to be bad for the world because a China that struggles to innovate will be a China that struggles to grow. And it's perhaps worth kind of noting here, I talk a little bit about China's development struggles um, in the book, but China is at a very perilous point in its economic development trajectory. Basically, it can't count on its traditional uh, sources of growth, exports in particular. Uh, even before the pandemic, China's export markets were more or less saturated. Now they've been thoroughly disrupted, uh, both by the pandemic itself, but also by these uh, growing geopolitical tensions that we've talked about, which have resulted in lots more investment restrictions, trade restrictive trade measures imposed by other large markets like the United States uh, and increasingly Europe. That means China's going to have to find new ways uh, to grow, and innovation is going to have to play a key role in that, generating more value from, from homegrown products, for example. But again, the kind of current system, particularly uh, the one that's taken shape under uh, Xi Jinping, uh, is going to really constrain that. And that's going to create a lot of very difficult challenges for China, but also for the rest of the world. Thank you so much, Scott. We've taken a lot of your time. What are you working on now? Besides the short piece you just wrote, I'm looking <laughs> forward to reading it. Um, well, I'm very interested in continuing to follow China's role in climate change, of course, although I think that the kind of short-term prospects for that are not tremendously exciting, though I think in part that's for understandable reasons in that China, actually, I, I should maybe add that uh, one of the brighter spots, I think maybe the only bright spot from a foreign perspective in the 20th Party Congress was that Xi Jinping essentially ratified environmental protection and sustainability and low carbon development as a key part of his vision for China's growth and development. Uh, and as part of that, China has made pretty ambitious commitments on climate change, most notably to uh, decarbonize on a net zero basis by 2060. Uh, so I'm interested in following developments around that. I should maybe just say briefly, I was at the uh, COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, a few weeks ago, and that was fascinating because really for the first time, uh, you saw other developing countries put a lot of pressure on China uh, to increase uh, financial support um, for uh, other developing countries suffering from climate change. And it's a very interesting development, not just in terms of climate policy, but also just in terms of uh, diplomacy and China's foreign relations, because China has up till now managed to kind of 
do a delicate balancing act between uh, acting as a great power while also being a, a full member of the developing country club um, and gaining a lot of diplomatic uh, credibility and influence uh, from that. Um, and I think you're potentially starting to see that that really fracture and that balancing act become a lot harder for Beijing to maintain. Um, so that'll be an interesting dynamic to to watch. Uh, maybe just one final brighter note. I see a lot of potential for China to work more closely with the United States and other countries on biodiversity conservation. Uh, and China will host uh, a major biodiversity conference coming up. So um, I think there are ways uh, that we can, we can look to uh, in the next few years to uh, do more for endangered and threatened species around the world, uh, working more closely with uh, Beijing. So there are some green shoots, some bright spots uh, in this picture, uh, and I'm looking forward to following those and trying to, to think about more specifically how to make progress on these shared challenges, even given uh, a worsening overall geopolitical picture. Thank you so much, Scott. Have a good day. Thank you. You too, Dong.